Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Christine, and Christine is the first guest we've had on from Hawaii. And that is a first, but apparently Christine is the only adoption specialist in Hawaii. Um, she's the CEO of uh, an agency over there, and she, is, she has five kids of her own, uh, and two of those are... Uh, international adoptees, I think. Is that right, Christine? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Christine. Great to great to have you on. Thank you. And so that I don't get kicked off the island, I find it really important to say I am not the only adoption expert. I said that jokingly to you. There are so many brilliant people in Hawaii. I can't even begin to name how many of my colleagues could out-talk me on the topic of adoption in a heartbeat. So to all my Hawaii living adoption expert friends. Apologies, Simon took me at my word, but thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love your podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Yeah, so I was brought up uh, very honest by my mum and dad. And so I tend to uh, take things at face value and I I believe the truth, right? I I believe everything is said is the truth. And sometimes, obviously, there's a a little bit of a a disconnect in terms of our uh, sense of humour. So the sense of humour in, um, in, in, in Weatherby, West Yorkshire, is, I guess, different to the sense of humour in Hawaii and Detroit, uh, Detroit where you were, you, you were raised, right? Maybe that's it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so be- before we started uh, talking, you were explaining um, what you felt was going to be the kind of the most important stuff that you'd learn as, uh, and continue to learn, obviously, as a... Uh, as an adoptive mom, and uh, we we between us we came up the, with this uh, this term um, of elastic parenting. So yes. what, what we did, um, what 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 does that what does that mean to you? Why why did that why did that ring why did that ring true to you that 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 phrase elastic parenting. First of all, being honest, Simon, as you are, I need to give you the full credit for elastic parenting because I was floundering about with a lot of inappropriate words and you brilliantly came up with elastic parenting. So let's give credit where credit is due because in the future when elastic parenting is the number one parenting paradigm that's used worldwide and I'm taking credit for it, then we have this little piece of evidence here that people will come back to and say, actually, no, it was Simon Ben who came up with elastic parenting. So let me say this about parenting in general and parenting children who are adopted. I am somebody who, on the one hand, avoids gross generalizations as much as possible, and on the other hand, uses them all the time to make points with a lot of caveats. So I'm starting this out by saying a lot of what I might say today is used to paint pictures and make examples, but I understand and you understand that every human being is unique. And to say that all adoptees experience this or that in the same way is just about as relevant as saying that, you know, your face looks exactly like my face, which if people could see us, they'd realize that's not the case. Um, So we're gonna use some generalizations with love and respect for the uniqueness of humanity. Um, I also wanna say that having done adoption work for 30 years, I feel like the luckiest woman on the planet because it is the most rewarding and gut-wrenching and um, informative and 
um, self-revealing experience that I think anyone could be lucky enough to have. Uh, I am so grateful to be still allowed to do this work. And I think there have been a lot of casualties along the way. A lot of folks have suffered as I've tried to figure out what's what. I look back on the mistakes I made um, with deep shame and regret. Um, and I think that our industry, for lack of a better term, has made so many mistakes um, historically and even not so long ago as we've tried to, I'm putting up little air quotes, help um, the children that we're, we're tasked with helping um, or that we often presume we need to help and, and maybe not. Um, I also wanna say that even though I've been doing this for 30 years and I have five wonderful children, two of whom are adopted, as you mentioned, I'm still learning things every single day. Um, just last night, for example, I had an absolutely revelationary conversation with my son um, while I was packing our bags for the upcoming family trip in the sweltering hot garage. He stood there and for an hour and a half talked at me about his adoption experience. And luckily I had the forethought to record it because he uttered pearls of wisdom that I hope someday to be able to transcribe and share with other people. But I also found myself at moments crying, didn't let him see that, but completely overwhelmed with emotion as he was sharing these intimate thoughts about his experience, unprovoked. I didn't plant a, you know, a starter question. He just started talking. Um, and you know, he's a 17 year old boy, not prone to great emotional, you know, experiences or sharings. Um, and, uh, so that's important is that adoption is a process. And I think we're all learning all the time. And to say there's one answer or one way of doing things would be false and uh, potentially damaging. Yeah, there is one truth though. What's that? Well, keep learning. Yeah. So, yes. I, you know, like people listening to the podcast. So we've just nudged over 15,000 uh, downloads of the podcast now. So delighted to hit, hit that. Yeah. Um, and the curiosity, I never say that word quite right. Curiosity, the curiosity of the listeners and, you know, like adoptive parents. And most listeners are either adoptive parents or adoptees. This episode is clearly for adoptive parents, but their curiosity is brilliant. And, you know, that is the one constant that we have to keep learning. Like, you, you, you're learning. You had a revelatory, you had a revelatory conversation with your son. And you saw some new stuff for the first time. Yes. Uh, and, like, yes. And, and how long's how long's your son, how long's your 17-year-old son, how long's he been in your life? So he arrived when he was 11. Right. And um, I had four children at that point, two older boys. Um, who I lovingly say I inherited through marriage, um, who were with me from the ages of 11 and eight. And that was also a really important experience for me to understand, um, you know, how children adjust and what the emotional um, bandwidth is of, you know, blending families and, uh, and so on. Um, and then I also had my two younger daughters. Um, and so my life was kind of perfect. I had, you know, two match sets uh, of kids and, you know, it worked logistically really well and it worked socially really well. And then, um, this young man arrived, uh, you know, at our agency, um, and the adoption was a disruption adoption. Um, and uh, I knew at that moment when I met him that he 
was meant to be in my life and I was meant to have the honor of being in his life. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. You know, I've worked in adoption at that point for 20 some years. I met thousands of children in orphanages. I had somehow steeled myself against feeling emotionally connected or parental in that specific way about any of them. Um, and he showed up and I just knew. Um, and, you know, there were lots of reasons why that wouldn't have been an easier, obvious feeling to have, uh, including the fact that, um, you know, five children is not always an easy thing, but I knew he was meant to be in my life. And I am so happy and grateful. Um, so he's now 17 and uh, that was six years ago that he arrived. Um, I wanna get back to what you just said about that learning. And that is why your elastic parenting is such a brilliant name for this kind of parenting that we're all hopefully doing, um, which is we are never, presuming to have the answers. And we are always seeking new truth or more truth or additional truth. Um, and, you know, putting our ego aside to say, oh, I, I don't necessarily have the answer right now, but I'm going to approach this with humility and openness. Um, and I think as parents, we often have a fear that, that we have to always be the authority for our children. And that when we show um, uncertainty or when we show um, ambivalence, or when we show that we've made a mistake, um, we're somehow, you know, not being the best parents we can be for our children. Uh, and I think that's not helpful to them. I think they need to see us as humans um, earlier than later. So what was, uh, obviously, uh, the conversation is still fresh uh, from, from last night, and, um, and clearly uh, confidential, uh, and you know, it's part part of it is his his story as well. But what was it? Given all that, um, what what would you like? Is there anything that you'd like to share about what was revelatory, or you know, what did the impact of that revelation? What were there were there any re uh, revelations that you can share, or what was the impact on on that revelation on you? That's fine. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. So um, I took away a lot of nuggets. And, I, and of course, I was thinking about talking with you, uh, you know, and as somebody who likes to please, I wanted to make sure I had good information for you. So as my son was, you know, expounding these truths, I was, you know, tickled uh, also for this reason. But if we could, I'd like to back up for one second sure. and talk about elastic parenting. And then I'll come back to some of the truths that I learned last night. So here's one of the things that I've learned in, um, in parenting and in teaching um, adoptive parents or pre-adoptive parents. Um, I've discovered that we have many people, maybe only Western people, maybe only first world people, I'm not sure, um, tend to have an approach to parenting that is very moralistic, that is very moral based. And we, I believe, feel that we have to say no to everything that is inaccurate or inappropriate. Um, we have to constantly correct and um, direct our children. And um, we have to point out anytime they say or do anything that is immoral. Um, and I think, especially for adoptees, again, apologies for the gross generalization, but what we've learned over the years is that it is not uncommon for adoptees to experience a deep sense of shame connected to the early loss and trauma and to often struggle with um, a sense of inadequacy 
or not having the right to take up space, um, questioning, you know, their validity. Um, and so what we've learned through the brilliant sharings of adoptees is that sometimes simple corrections, simple what a parent might think of as a, you know, I'm just helping you. <laughs> I'm just reminding you this is how you're supposed to do this. I'm just giving a loving correction. Sometimes that can feel like a brutal attack. Sometimes the most innocuous comment can feel like you're being bashed upside the head and basically your entire personality and essence is being decimated. Wow. What do you say about that? Does that well, ring true at all? Well, yeah, I'm, I, I, but I, I, I think that's a human thing. I think that some humans in my experience are a little better able or have tools or have a foundation that allows that sort of thing to come in a little more gently. And what I've heard from adoptees is that it comes in like a raging bull and there's very little modulation. It's an all or nothing experience often. Yeah. I mean I would describe myself as uh, kind of like a sensitive person. Um, I, I, I don't know to what extent that, you know, like you could say, well, is that, is that due to being adopted? You know, like who knows? I mean, the, the mind is a meaning making machine and we, and, and we hang our pegs, you know, we hang, we, we, we hang everything. We hang too much on the adoption peg or the, um, you know, uh, I don't know, the uh, middle child peg or the uh, fell off my bike when I was two peg. You know, we're, the, we're, we're always, the mind is looking for shortcuts and uh, and it's not often right, in my opinion. I don't, what, what I would say on that is it, it like my dad was, uh, unfortunately died like five years ago. He was... He was a tricky guy at work, um, and he, he he did a lot of that stuff that you're talking about, right? But he, he did that with everybody. Yeah. But it landed with me, right? You know, he, so I, I've got slightly stooped shoulders, right? I'm not, I don't stand I don't stand up straight like a marine. I'm I'm slightly stooped. I've got rounded shoulders, and this like he corrected me with that stuff. And that, yeah, kind of hurt, really. Um, but, you know, he corrected everybody with everything. That was kind of his nature. But it, 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 um, it didn't, as a teenager, for example, that didn't particularly handle me. My mum was mom, still alive. My mum is completely different. But one thing that jarred for me was once I got, I, uh, I, I ran out in front of a, a, a little car uh, sorry, a little van. It's more like a car van sort of thing, and got knocked uh, and not got knocked over when I was about ten. And when I got home, I told my mum, and and she said, "Oh, you you silly idiot," or something like that, right? And I and I was like, I didn't do that on purpose, mum. You know, like so in her in, in her frustration, she she came out with that, and 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 I did think, oh, that, yeah. Um, so th those would be a couple of examples of of those corrections. And, and I, don't, I don't think they, they're good for anybody. I don't think they're good for any kid. Um, 
Um, I don't think they're very good. I, but we do, who knows? I mean, the, the generalization, hanging everything on the adoption peg. And, you know, what I, having conversations with adoptive parents like I do a lot, um, they, they seem to spend a lot of time trying to, wondering whether it's an option-related issue or not. Um, and I don't think that is... If, when I spend my time spinning my wheels on that subject, it, it doesn't really... It, it's a waste of time, really. It's just spinning, it's just spinning the wheels. Now. Okay, that's so helpful. So then I would ask you, if we're talking about adoption parenting... Are we just talking about parenting? Um, well, I don't know because I'm not a parent. Um, I, you, you know, I, I'm I, I'm I'm looking for. I, I bring my adoptee experience, but I the, it, it's it's we've had however many hundred and fifty episodes now. It, it's for me, it's a dialogue. Um, yeah. But but you're the one that's a, a parent, so you know more about it you've learned you've had you've had those revelations um, yeah. I, I just put put my four penneth in where 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 i kind of like feel it's a progress and i love i love that distinction because i think it's really important that we never overly pathologize or pigeonhole or characterize for convenience any group of people i think that's a very dangerous thing to do i also have come to believe that um, there is nothing wrong with an overcorrection if it's a positive one um, where we don't have a clear answer. So you're absolutely right. Like parents will never know when Johnny comes home from school in a complete funk one day, because maybe Johnny's not verbally, you know, expressing what's going on, but he's just completely stymied. I always tell parents, go down your list of things that might have triggered him, right? Like as parents, we know. Um, the weather was bad, you know, he got in trouble from dad before he went to school, um, he's struggling with the maths, or, you know, whatever it is. And I say, you know, at the end of your list, if you haven't figured out something, then it might be an adoption related issue that you won't know about, because the things that go on in children's heads, you know, we often won't be able to, to know, you know, if they're not telling us, the simplest thing could trigger a child. So where I come up with my, what I call adoptive parenting, um, you know, theories and ideas are things I've learned from adult adoptees, things I've heard from adoptees over the years that I've sort of collected into a general theory. And this theory, as you came up with the brilliant name, elastic parenting, has to do with being even more flexible than the average parent would be in traditional parenting situations, right? So for example, um, uh, in adoptive parenting, we talk about time um, in versus time out as a discipline tactic. You've heard this, right? Um, I have, and um, and I think it's I think it's a, a big one, and I think it's a big one for everybody. So you mentioned shame earlier on. Um, yeah. Have you have you uh, heard of um, a guy called David Hawkins. I ref I talk about his book quite a lot. Uh, the, one of his key books. He's, a, he's an American guy. Um, he's not no longer with us, but he he, he has a 
he has a book called Power Versus Force. Have you heard uh-huh. Power, power no, I'm versus... not. I'm, I'm writing it down. Yeah, so power versus force. Um, here's a scale of a scale of human uh, consciousness, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, zero is dead, and a thousand are, are the great, um, you know, the, the great avatars: Jesus, Buddha, and people like that. Uh, the United right. States Marines, I mentioned them earlier on. They calibrate at 180. They calibrate. So he's, he's cali- he calibrates different things like a, 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 di- a, 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 a the, the wag of a dog's tail, the Marines, all yeah. sorts of stuff. But he also calibrates um, uh, the United States Marine Corps calibrate at 180 because um, pride calibrates at 180. Pride. And shame, mm-hmm. shame is 20. Right. Shame is 20. Zero is dead. Right. So shame, feeling ashamed is like one of the most toxic kind of emotions yes. to, be, to be feeling, which is why most people, a lot of people are scared of public speaking because they're worried about messing up and, you know, and making right. a fool of themselves and feeling bad about themselves. So, right. um, so for, for me, that's, you know, our, our, our level of consciousness is going up and down um, uh, all the time. And, uh, you know, that time out thing, the reason that time in is, is better than time out, because, you know, isolation and, and being uh, in isolation, we, we, we're, uh, we're all collective beings, aren't we? We want to be together. We, we, yeah. Uh, so if you, if you, but the, 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 the science using this con- consciousness thing, the reason it's bad is because it makes people feel that they're ashamed. It's like you're being, you're being expelled from the group. So if we were primates, you know, you're going to be left on your own. So, yeah, time, time, time in rather than time out. It's- right. And what I've heard from adoptees is that it's potentially, you know, sort of a reminder that I don't belong, I don't fit in. Um, so getting back to sort of the difference and trying to figure out how do we deal with the idea of adoptive parenting or is it just good parenting in general? And, and how do we avoid hanging everything on the adoption peg, as you said, but also being instructed by people's experiences, right? Because we can't ignore that growing up adopted for many people is a, a, an experience that is not comfortable or easy in, in that regard. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to remember that many, 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 in fact, most people who are adopted grow up to be successful, happy, well-adjusted people. Um, and, and their particular, you know, um, burden to bear or challenge or issue that may continue to, str- you know, cause struggle is the adoption issue. You know, whereas somebody who was born into a intact biological family and raised in that family may have had a physically abusive father, and that's going to be that person's issue, right? Um, or may have had another thing happen. Um, but I think we start by saying, and I don't know if you're comfortable with this, adoption is a traumatic experience. Being taken from the birth mother, being taken from whether you're taken at birth in the hospital, um, you've been with this person physically for nine months, you know the smell of her, you know the sound of her, you know the feeling of her, um, and suddenly that all changes. 
And no matter how wonderful the adoptive parents are who, you know, take you in their arms, everything changes in that moment. That's a traumatic experience for that little infant. And that can inform a lot of your experience going forward. And the nine months that you were in utero were heavily impactful. You connected with the person carrying you, you know, you're genetically connected to that person. And now all that's also gone. So you've lost so much. So, you know, when I talk about things that are specific to the adoptive experience, what I've learned from adoptees is that, you know, there is some trauma and there is some loss and there is some grief possibly and some shame. And it doesn't mean that they're walking around full of shame and grief and loss all the time, right? It's just, that's the particular brand of challenge that these folks tend to have to deal with. Yeah. So my, in the... My, my, my life has been a cakewalk in this respect. That's lovely for you. And, you know, and I think what you also mentioned earlier, which is why you don't want to hang everything on any peg ever, is because every human being is unique. And how we respond to the same set of challenges will be different person to person. There's no one way to respond to a given set of challenges. Everybody has their unique constitution, their genetics, their in utero experience, all these things inform how we live, right? Yeah. And, and it sounds like you had parents who were loving and supportive and attached to you and allowed you to attach to them, which isn't always the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so my life was a cakewalk on this stuff, but the, it, and then you you heard about the teddy bear and you know hitting that and 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 this and the these feelings coming up towards my uh, anger coming up towards my birth mother. So I kind of and I, I know what that uh, it it was a cakewalk until then, and then it got a bit tricky. And then it got trickier still when um, I when I read the, the the primal wound and started yeah. to hang what is human on the adoption peg and 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 I became so I kind of like went down the I went down the trauma tunnel and luckily uh, I had some support uh, I, and. And instead of going further, further down the tunnel, I turned round. So what I see is I, it was getting darker, right? So I was seeing less clearly as I went down the trauma tunnel. And I didn't go very far down compared to most people. But then because I had a, a coach and I, I turned I turned back and I and I saw the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And and, yeah. and 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 that's when I saw that for me, uh this is a, a consciousness thing. So a, a fixed historic event cannot, cannot actually, in any, in, in, in any sense of logic, can that be the cause of a variable experience? A, a fixed event can't explain a variable experience. My mood, my level of insecurity being up and down, being up and down that level of consciousness. So it, it, for, for me, it's that. It, it's the, it's the, uh, the mood that I'm in, um, the level of consciousness that I'm in, how I'm feeling, whether I'm tired, you know, tired, whether I'm well enough hydrated, all these sorts of things. Um, deter and, 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 what, and what I'm believing to be true 
in the moment about myself. That's that's kind of the answer where for, for me. I don't does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking about so now I'm thinking about two different things here. I'm I'm realizing and I want to make sure that your listeners and lovely as they are for tuning in. And we talked earlier about why it's so important for parents uh, to continually educate themselves. So hopefully this will be enlightening. Um, there are two things here. We're talking about specific parenting tactics, which will benefit your child. And I'm going to stick with the child who has experienced the trauma of adoption. Yes. Um, and then there's also the uh, mature adult. You know, when we hit the age of 18 and our brain, our, free, our prefrontal lobe is fully developed and we have executive functioning and we understand all the things and we can, you know, help ourselves a little more. Um, then there's that, you know, reality and how do we review and correct and help ourselves. And I am a huge proponent of EMDR um, as a psychotherapist. It's something that I use and that I believe very strongly in as a wonderful um corrective intervention for dealing with past traumas and experiences. And everything you said just now um, connects very nicely to the idea of how EMDR works, that you know you do have experiences that you, um, if you have the benefit of having a great coach as you did, um, or using it, something like EMDR, you can review those experiences and you can readapt them so that you're not perpetually reliving, right? And, and on the um, whatever on the horrible path of re-experiencing those over and over, right? Um, but talking about adoptive parenting, getting yeah. back to that, um, uh, I think there are a few basic truths and ideas that I would like to put out there. Right. Um, and, and they do use generalizations of the adoptive experience, um, and they do they do operate around the idea that there is an initial trauma, primal wound, as you said, and that's a wonderful book that every adoptive parent absolutely should read, um, and the shame and the guilt. So here's what I learned last night that sort of reinforces all of this. What I took away from my conversation with this dear, dear 17-year-old um, is that basically for some people, the things that the rest of us take for granted are challenging. Answering a simple question like, how many siblings do you have? You know, what I heard last night was, I actually don't know. I don't know. I know that I have four here, but if I'm answering that truthfully, I don't know the answer. Um, you know, who are your parents? What happened to them? You know, I don't know. So he said, it's easier to say that they died. It's easier to say that my birth parents are dead than to try and answer where they might be and why I'm here. Wow. And right now telling you this, I am one human goosebump and I'm about to start crying because to think about the, the conflict that that question poses, to have to say that somebody is dead when you don't know if they're dead, you're caught in a potential lie, which brings you discomfort. You're caught in remembering the experience you know, and these are simple questions that people ask innocuously all the time. And yet to hear this young man tell me the struggle that these questions give him yeah. was really profound. Yeah. Um, and so I would say the takeaway is be sensitive. 
be aware, be aware of all the things we take for granted as people who are born into and raised by our biological families. Yeah. We take so much for granted. So uh, what I have seen, you know, you talked about your, your, your theory um, and, and how you brought that in from your experience as, an, as, a, as a mom and also as a, a professional. From what I can gather on the outside, you know, there's different levels of uh, complexity in in adoption. So you've kind of you've got, um, you know, your 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 son's been with you since he's eleven. So he's got the stuff that happened before the adoption, and you know, you've got the so you've got you've got a time, you've got an age, and a level of age complexity. I did in. in You've got a kind of like the uh, the international, the international stuff adds another layer of complexity, um, especially when the culture is very different. And then you've kind of you've also got the transracial, uh, uh, you've got the transracial element, and all these different levels of uh, complexity can can be be bigger causes of, of of trauma, right? So I don't understand what it's like to be a I'm a I'm a white guy. Uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a white guy adopted by white, 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 white parents. So the young guy, I've got the, yeah. I, I, I haven't got the international dimension either. So I don't have the international dimension. And I, I was five weeks old. So this, you know, my 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 case is simpler. Um, yeah. And obviously, you've got the adoption from foster care. So you've got that, uh, you know, domestic the stuff that happened, there's a reason that the kid is in foster care. So you've got all that kind of, so you've got all these different, all these different things. And, and, and the, 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 the level of sensitivity required may be higher, the more, the more complex it is. Yeah. And I don't want to knock the wind out of your sails, but I want to give you some other examples. Um, and it's true what you just said. All of that is true. And I think as we honor each person, we have to look at everything they bring to the table, right? Um, so uh, full disclosure, my son is Chinese and my husband is Chinese and I have another Chinese daughter in the family and we live in an Asian dominant place. Uh, my son goes to school and looks like everybody at school for the most part, um, especially because they wear uniforms, they all look the same. Um, so, you know, that physical difference piece is not there. Um, you know, the things that I'm hearing, these, these things that I'm hearing from him or that I'm really now thinking about are things that transcend all of those categories you just uh, pointed out, which are all heavily, you know, potentially very difficult um, characteristics. But let me tell you about um, a woman that I knew um, who I think about all the time in my trainings, who was born and placed at birth into a family where she looked exactly like everybody else um, and raised in a time where people didn't talk about adoption. Um, and she shares that from a very early age, her earliest memories are every time she was with anybody in her family, all she was thinking about uh, underlying everything else was, I don't share blood with this family. And people always assume that she looked just, you know, because she looked like everyone, that she was a biologically connected member of that family. 
Um, and when she told me that years and years ago, it really changed how I think about adoption. And again, that's one example. Um, you know, but I've since heard that from a number of other people that it doesn't matter how you look. Of course it does, of course it does. Like if you're adopted white into a black family or black into a white family or Chinese into a, into a Mexican family, that can bring with it another uh, bunch of challenges because we are a superficial world and we make judgments on how people look and we decide if we like or don't like somebody based on that and whether you fit in or not, if you look like me or not, um, all cruel stuff that we still do as human beings. Um, but what I'm learning is that identity is much deeper and that how you fit in and whether you fit in can be a much deeper experience. And then it may have little or nothing to do with how you look, um, that you have a sense deep down that you either fit in with this group or you don't. Um, and you know, I, I hear that a lot in my psychotherapy practice where I work with adoptees. Um, and I hear that from adult adoptees that I know. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's it's the degree to which we feel, as you say, that we fit in. So if we um, is it is the I don't know the word is chunk up. So we've got we've got all these different things, but if we chunk up, it's feeling different. So sharing blood is is one example of feeling different. Not looking the same is 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 not you know uh, is feeling feeling different not fitting in um cultural stuff not fit. so so a white a, a, a white russian adoptee you know from a, an orphanage in, in in russia who's raised by white parents there, there's a cultural thing although they're both white um there's a cultural thing as well so but the whole thing is not not fitting in we all want to fit in right we all we we all want to fit in. We all want to fit in and we all want to be accepted. And, you know, I think accepted and loved and, and, you know, seen for who we are. Um, and I think getting back to the idea that if we are to make any gross generalizations about parenting a child who we adopt, um, to be aware of the potential for an innate sense of shame and guilt um, and, um, and how that trauma can be continually re-triggered um, is really important. And, and so with this elastic parenting, what I picture is we're checking ourselves and what is traditionally sort of acceptable parenting, like constantly pointing out when a child needs to do something differently or better, um, you know, that that might be really harmful. And maybe part of the elasticity is realizing that we don't have to say everything and the child will still bounce back. We'll still take, you know, we'll still move on in a healthy way. One thing I, I like to point out to parents is that children have a very good sense of right and wrong, right? Not initially. And there's, a, there's the developmental stage where they're meant to be testing all the boundaries, right? And they, they still know right from wrong, but they're going to kind of pretend like they don't because they want to see what happens when they do wrong. Um, but for the most part, human beings have a very good innate sense of right and wrong. And I believe that when children misbehave, they punish themselves far more than we could by carrying around the guilt and the, you know, the feeling of um, being bad um, that is very toxic 
and difficult. And, and I think that as parents, if our kids know that we know when they've misbehaved, that's almost a better way of dealing with it than actually saying it or addressing it. So I'll give another example is that one of my children once, um, we, were at, we had a birthday party at our house and one of the children received a big box of Legos. And um, at the end of the party, I was cleaning up and the box was there, but the Legos were not there. Couldn't find the Legos anywhere. So I asked all the children, does anyone know where the Legos are? And of course, the child who protested too heavily, I knew well, that child took the Legos, right? So I went into the bedroom and I looked around and in the back of the sock drawer, I found all the new Legos stuffed in the back. And so instead of confronting the child, I took the Legos, put them in a Ziploc bag, got a piece of pink paper, wrote the child's name on the paper, put that back in the back of the drawer with all the Legos. Now, to say that child never took anything ever again would make this sound like a miracle cure for, right? But the truth is that child never took anything ever again. And, and my intent with that was to show the child, I know what you did. I know that you know what you did is wrong. We don't have to go any further with this. I love you unconditionally. I've left my little marker here, right? But to make a child feel more wrong for having done something wrong in the first place, I think is counterproductive. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of parents go wrong in general. And I think especially in adoption where we're wanting to make sure that our children are continually attaching and you know, that we're actively working on that attachment and we're actively working to overcome any innate sense of shame or guilt they may have from that initial broken bond, that wound, um, that that is a, a task we need to embrace. And part of our elasticity needs to be saying, I feel like I'm conditioned to always react to everything immediately and tell the kid every time he misbehaves or does something wrong or could have done better, but what does that actually accomplish? Yeah. He will bounce back into his healthiest place of stasis if I'm not constantly yeah. attacking and reminding. So I gave my dad a bit of a bad rap earlier on, and, and I've just thought of one where I did something wrong, and he, and he, uh, like I, yeah, it was, it was bad, bad thing. So I, um, <laughs> I'm laughing. Never, never shared this on the podcast. So I would be, I've been going out with this girl for a while and I really liked this girl. Anyway, uh, it, 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 uh, it ended. And um, so I was on the rebound and I went to this party. So I'm about 22, maybe 23. I went to this party and I met a, another girl who, um, uh, anyway, I decided it would be a good idea to drive her home. And I was, I was drunk, right? Um, so I got done by the police. Uh, you know, I got a, a what you call it a DUI, isn't it? Okay. In the states, yes. Uh, you know, and um, and I was mortified about the lack of uh, lack of freedom that I was going to have because if you get done for drink driving here in this in the UK, you get a minimum one year ban, right? Um, and when I went home to tell. I wasn't, so I didn't live at home. I, I, I was, I had my own house by that. Uh, but I, I went home to tell my dad. Uh, and uh, he was, 
he, he was like, um, by by the grace of God, that's go I, you know, because he had drunk and driven. And so I knew, I didn't, I, I knew that I'd done the wrong thing. Um, and I didn't need him. And he didn't, you know. Um, yes, you've just made my point, right? Was that your intention? You've just underscored why this type of parenting is so brilliant. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you, you kind of like, you, you know, you don't need to, this stuff. Um, I wanted to take you back to something you said about, I don't know, about half an hour ago, um, about, uh, about your emotions. So you're having this conversation with your son last night. Uh, <laughs> busily storing away stuff to talk to me about this morning, um, which I think is amazing. Uh, and you said um, you you said you said uh, something about you didn't let your son see your emotions. Did you say something like that? Oh yes, thank you for bringing that up because I don't want to be mischaracterized as a stony cold, you know. So I didn't want to distract him with my emotional situation because he was on a roll and I feel like when you get a kid talking or when a kid decides to start talking that is a gift and you don't want to do anything to distract or make it about you right so my kid knows I love him he knows my emotion I actually continually tell him how much I love him before and after or and throughout that conversation first when it started I could tell where we were going with it and a few times during it, and at the end, I thanked him profusely for having shared his thoughts. Um, and I told him how much I loved him and how honored I was that he was sharing these things with me and how much I loved him and how knowing what was happening in his head and heart made me um, you know, love him even more and, and be more um, grateful for the insight. So he, I'm a very emotional mom. Uh, maybe to a fault. I feel it's really important for my children to know how much I love them and, um, and how amazed I am by them. Um, I tell them constantly um, with specific detail because general compliments to children are not helpful. So specific details like you did this specific thing really well, or I'm very proud of how you reacted to that particular situation. Um, yeah. What, what, what's your, what's your take on um sharing your emotions about your own stuff with your kids not about them but about you and does that make enough can i can I, I just want to give you a bit more prompt for this because this was something i did a lot of work i used to do a lot of work in elementary schools what we call primary schools right and i i start at, at one point i I found myself, when I was first starting off doing this work, I found myself telling the kids about my experience when I was their age of being bullied. And this got their attention and their, and their empathy and their understanding and, and connection like nothing I've ever seen before. And so I... That that's the context for the for the question um, because I don't know I'm I'm not a parent so I, but what, what's what's your take on on this on 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 sharing 
emotions with kids in different situations. So um, you said that you didn't talk, uh, you, you, held, you held everything together to keep your, keep your kid, keep, keep your boy flowing last night. Um, so can you talk about this stuff? Absolutely. And I think there's a huge distinction, two distinctions to be made here. One is parents uh, pretty much are the least cool, stupidest people who know nothing at all for most of their children's lives. Um, whereas as somebody who comes into a school, you had those kids in a really good position because you automatically had a slight advantage um, by not being their parent. Um, so I think you expressing your experience was the total right move and got their buy-in and was brilliant. So congratulations. And I'm really glad kids got to experience you. And I hope you still are doing things with kids because I think that's really important. Um, so as the parent, there's a different um, relationship that we have with our kids and we have a different um, ability to connect with them for a number of, and there's things to keep in mind. Age is hugely relevant, right? There, there are developmental stages where kids think that we know stuff. And then there are these really long stretches where, like I said, we're the dumbest person on the planet and we have no ability to say anything because they just roll their eyes. Um, and we have to be careful when they are in that stage that we not continue to make ourselves look stupid in their eyes by trying to get our messages across because all we're doing is creating more and more barriers for them to hear or experience our wisdom in those moments. Um, so I, I, I do share, my kids do see me cry and laugh. Um, uh, I do share my own experiences um, with them. Um, often, you know, if there's a point to be made, I will say something casually about something I did. Um, I've had a really lovely life. I've had a lot of experiences. I've had a lot of crazy adventures. I've lived in a lot of places. And I think um, if I'm just be honest, I think they're not necessarily impressed by that, but I think they're aware of that. And I think that gives me a little bit of a advantage uh, authority. Um, but I'm very careful to not share too much with my kids at this particular age. They're 13, uh, 15, 13, 16, and 17 the three at home and the two older ones are gone. So this is an age that's very tricky because like I said, I, I pretty much know nothing in their eyes and I have to be careful how much I share. Um, the one thing I do regularly employ is this tactic. Whenever I do have to have a difficult discussion, like your room has not been picked up in a week, I'm tripping over stuff, you know, <laughs> you have one job and it is to put your clothes away or whatever it is. Uh, I always say this, like, this is the part of the parenting task that I hate doing. You think you hate hearing me say these things. I hate saying them even more than you hate hearing them. I want to be liked by you guys. I'm aware that when I'm forced to take this position, you don't like me. I don't like being not liked. So let's all figure out how to do this so that I don't have to keep being the unliked person <laughs> because none of us like the unlikable person. Um, so I often give them that line, which is like, this is not the fun part of my job. I love being a parent more than life itself. I hate being the meanie. So let's not make me be the meanie. Yeah. That's something I regularly share with all of them. That's cool. That's cool. Mm. I, I love sharing the, you know, sharing the inner dialogue. I can, um, I can, I can see that as a, uh, as a, as a, a great softener, um, 
uh, softener and, and kind of like exploration stuff. Um, so I'm just conscious yeah. of time. Um, and yes. I, I think you're going to have to come on again in about, I don't know, uh, six months or so, uh, or if not before, because I think we, you and I can talk all night. Um, is there, uh, are there any other elements to uh, this elastic parenting that you'd like to share with the, with the listeners? Thank you. I do agree. I learned so much from you in this short hour that we've had. Um, and I am a little um, sad that I didn't share more pearls of wisdom and I would love to come back on. And I want to just sort of summarize um, for your listeners where we're at with all of this. So if I were to give a few concise thoughts about successful parenting of a person who happens to be adopted, um, I would say the thing that I've learned from my own children and from the adults that I'm lucky enough to know who were adopted is that um, we should never presume to know what somebody is thinking or feeling. Um, loving curiosity is a great way to go. Um, top down, top down um, you know, sort of heavy in discipline, punitive, um, uh, directive parenting can be um, a landmine for people who are maybe dealing with covert or overt shame, guilt, attachment, adjustment, situation, and all kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, it doesn't hurt to be more loving um, and a little more flexible, elastic in your parenting. Um, and it's okay to do it together and to not have all the answers. And if your kids make mistakes, as long as no one's being harmed and they're not putting their lives at risk, They'll learn a lot more if you're not correcting and directing them all the time. But it's super important, and I have to say this now, I also believe that the best parenting and the best child rearing and the best education happens when children are in a consistent, dependable, not chaotic, regimented experience. So that kind of contradicts what I just said about being elastic, but I do think children need boundaries because that makes them feel safe. They need consistency because then they don't have to worry about what's coming next and they can be children and they don't have to worry about, you know, is this going to happen or that going to happen? So consistency, scheduling, boundaries, all those things, those no fun, not sexy things, um, those hard work parenting things, I think are also very important while being elastic in the middle of that. You set up the nice system and then you're elastic in the middle of it. Beautiful. So that's how I would leave that. And um, I am so grateful that you found me or I found you and that you came up with this wonderful elastic parenting, which I'm going to run with. Good. Good. Um, I, I was thinking, you know, you could call it uh, curious parenting. You, you know, could, but I like elastic. I'm going to stick with elastic. No offense. You keep coming up with great things. I may have to have multiple parenting theories now based on all the words well, you're coming up yeah. with. Well, I guess that's the that's uh, that's the the thing, isn't it? We we we're being we're we're taking a plastic approach to this. Like, so you'll know this from your psychotherapy. You know, you, you, we're talking about plasticity, aren't we? Um, with plasticity and I think it's always funny that uh, we have we have something called mindset don't we mindset I, I don't really like mindset I, I like mind uh, plastic you know but we're all so, great sorry 
we're also quick to get to, you know, we've got to get to the kind of, yeah, I, I know it. I, I've got my 10 commandments now. You know, I've got my six steps to parenting now. I know what I'm going to do. I've got my five steps to getting more podcast guests or 16 ways to get more podcast listeners. I know I've got my, I've got it it's set in my mind. I know, well, no, that's, that's not how, that's not how we have breakthroughs, is it? We have breakthroughs by staying curious. I love that you bring up mindset as a really problematic concept because I think that's exactly it. The mind should not be set. The mind should be curious and dynamic. And um, yeah. So I read the book. Have you read the book, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset? Mindset. Yes. Growth Mindset. Okay. It's, it's a great book. Um, And it, uh, and, but I can summarize it in, in three letters. Yet, yet. Mm-hmm. So you can't do that yet. You can't, you don't know how to break into the little league team yet. You don't know how to catch, I'm trying to make this American. Um, you don't know how to catch a football <laughs> yet. You don't know how to score a, a penalty at, at Wembley yet. You don't know how to be um, the best parent that you could be yet. That's all it is. It's like it's it's it, it, she she she. I listened to the audio book and it took forever, and it, it was just about <laughs> it was it was just it was just a yet and stay curious. And I thought it's incredible how she can make this massively long. And 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 she's she's it's the book, growth mindset. Yes, hopefully she won't hear this podcast and hopefully feel she that she released the Just stay curious. Thing. Just stay curious. You can't do it yet. Stay curious. Just that's it. One of the great basketball players, I can't remember which one, I want to say Michael Jordan, but I'm not sure, said that, you know, he had to fail 10,000 times. Well, there's also Malcolm uh, Gladwell, you know, that you can't do anything until you've done it 10,000 times. Like, don't think you're actually even experiencing that thing, you know, in its authentic form until you've done it 10,000 times. And I love that idea because it's the yet. It's like, yeah, I mean, we're on a path and we're just starting out. And if you're perpetually curious and open and flexible and you think, you know, I've got 10,000 more times to at least try this, um, then you remain optimistic and seeking. So I've got, I've got 9,900. No, 9,850 podcasts to go before I, before I um, am a true uh, expert podcaster. Oh, no. That, That's not exhausting at all. There you I'm go. Gonna find, I'm going to find 10,000. I'm going to find 10,000 people as passionate as you about talking about adoption. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I am passionate about um, this, but I'm also passionate about meeting awesome people like you. That's an Americanism. I haven't used the word awesome in so long. Um, I had such a good time talking to you, and I do hope you think of a reason to have me back. I will be ready and willing instantly. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. And thank you, listeners. Um, Thank you, listeners, for bearing uh, bearing with us. When it gets into the parenting stuff, I do find myself a little bit out of my depth because I, I can't, I don't have any lived experience about it. So I'm glad that we have people like Christine to, to, uh, to um, fly the flag and say what, 
say what should be, needs to be said in, in terms of parenting. So thanks a lot, listeners. We'll see you all again. We won't see you. We'll speak to you again very soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.